Okay, I have uh, with me today Dr. Lawrence Locklear and Ms. Nancy Fields, and we are going to talk about Henry Barry Lowry. Um, and both of uh, both Lawrence and Nancy will be able to give us a lot of information. I know um, we're going to start off with something really basic. Who was Henry Barry Lowry? Henry was Henry was the son of Alan Lowry and Mary Cumbo Lowry. He was uh, born. He was Lumbee Indian. He was born around 1844, um, and he lived over in the uh, Elrod community, which is just a few miles south of present-day Pembroke. Um, he came from a very large family. Um, his dad was a carpenter, woodsmith guy. Um, he came from, a, I guess you would probably say, a middle class. Uh, family, but considering how poor everyone in the community, that's kind of got to understand the context of that statement. But but uh, he came from an influential family. He was actually the descendant of a William Lowry who fought during the Revolutionary War. Um, one of his, I think, his great great grandfather owned a, um, a a a crossing there at Har present day Harpers Ferry Church that was used to cross the river. And so his he came from a line of entrepreneurs. Um, and the Lowry's are still 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 known for that. So they were a very influential uh, family. And he had a lot of also forgot to mention, too, he had a, a, quite a few siblings. His dad was married twice. So he came from a very uh, large family. Nancy, do you have anything you want to add or is that. Lawrence, get it all. Yeah, I think he got the gist of of. Um, of, of Henry, I think that. Um, just in terms of personality and behaviors, they were known as just very vivacious people. They were very musical. Um, the Lowry's were known to be very, um, I think, civically engaged, um, engaged with the community. They were um, part of the fabric of the community. And over time, that uh, changes uh, due to wars and, and social um, um, ideas uh, around uh, race and identity. Um, but they just certainly um, have this really strong zeal for life and um, really seem to subscribe to this kind of concept of what we would think of today as American values. Okay. So y'all would both say that the family then, they were kind of movers and shakers in the community. Yes. Well respected, all of that. Yes, very much. Early okay. On. Yeah. <laughs> early, early on, everything's couched with time, of course. Um, so, given everything that you just said, how did Henry Barry Lowry become so famous or infamous? Which, which word should we use? I think you you first to to answer that question, which is a great question. I think you first uh, first of all have to start off with what was going on during the time period. You know, when you go back to the Civil War, um, uh, which lasted from 1861 to 1865, the uh, Confederate Army had, uh, I guess, won Fort Fisher from the U.S. Army. Uh, Fort Fisher is located near present day Wilmington, and so the Confederate Army was um, was taking slaves from in enslaved African-Americans from the local community and using them to help uh, build or construct Fort Fisher, which was an earthen works uh, fort. Uh, but a number of the slaves, you know, were dying from malaria and um, plantation owners were concerned about losing their property. 
And so the Confederate Army heard that just 100 miles or so down the road was this large population of free, free persons of color. And so they turned to conscripting Lumbee men and taking them down to Fort Fisher to work on the fort. And um, when many of the men, though, even though they would go to the fort, they would escape and come back to Robson County. And when they would escape and come back, they would they would what we call around what we say now they would lie out in the swamps. That means they would hide in the swamps during the day because they they were afraid of being recaptured by uh, uh, home guard officials and taken back to um, Wilmington. And so that sort of started some of the I guess that was the beginning of the things that led to Hammerberry Lowry becoming famous because he ultimately he, his brother he had an older brother uh, William. They formed uh, this gang or group of men that was comprised of William, um, Hemerbury Lowry, Steve, their brother Tom, Steve, their brother Tom. It also included some first cousins, Henry and Calvin Ox and Nine, some uh, formerly enslaved African Americans, one or two local whites. And uh, what they would do is they they would rob from wealthy plantation owners and redistribute that food back in the community because during the latter years of the war, people were starving. Uh, there were just no no resources to be shared. And so this uh, drew the attention, of course, of wealthy plantation owners because they were like, we have to put a stop to this. But also what was going on is the, the Lowry gang was harboring escaped Union soldiers. There was a Union prison uh, about an hour's drive south of here today uh, in Florence, South Carolina. There was a prison there for Union soldiers, I should say. It was run by the Confederacy. And when these Union soldiers would escape, they would make their way north and that would bring them through Robinson County. And so many of the Lumbee people um, supported the efforts of the Union Army and harbored these escaped Union soldiers. And so the Home Guard saw, saw that one, you had this gang robbing from plantation owners, but two, at the same time, they were harboring escaped um, Union prisoners. And so um, to put a stop to that in March of 1865, the brother, uh, William, who was uh, the head of the gang at the time, and uh, his father, Alan, the Home Guard rounded them up and the short of the long is they uh, had this, uh, they were tried, if you want to call it a trial, I don't know what you would actually call it, but um, they were found guilty and they were, they were um, forced to dig their own graves and they were executed. And as a result of that, the oral history goes that Hammerberry Lowry vowed to seek revenge against anyone who had anything to do with the murder of his father and brother. And that was sort of the start of the Lowry War and how he became famous. He stepped up and took the place of his brother, uh, William, at that time. Okay, you went through quite a lot there. Uh, I have questions about some of that stuff. Nancy, do you want to add anything, though, before I ask my other questions? Well, going back to perhaps what made, you know, just to take everything Lawrence just said um, and encapsulate it or wrap it, rather, wrap it in this package of, uh, you know, all of these actions that um, the Lowry gang were carrying out, uh, was done with um, a lot of um, passion. Uh, there was quite a bit of bravado and charisma and um, definitely really strong masculinity. Um, you know, just very, it was very sensational, right? These weren't nuanced, um, soft stance, um, activities that this, you know, gang was doing being, uh, being also being led by Henry, but, you know, it was just kind of, um, 
Powell um, spectacular, um, both, and I mean spectacular in a spectrum of like shock and awe, um, that they were carrying out these actions. And that really got, you know, local attention, regional attention, and um, national attention. Ultimately, I think what made them famous was how things began circulating among the press. And so, um, you know, kind of like how we associate um, movies or television today, privileging a story in print um, meant something. It was worth something, right? It had a greater significance than a local, a local reach. And so it's just kind of like um, you can equate it with, with uh, kind of a, a fiction in a way. People just can't believe some of these actions. And so they were just like latched onto these stories. Um, and of course, for folks that were personally affected by them, I mean, that was just kind of um, salt to the wound in some in some cases, you know, to read these stories that were reaching um, newspapers like Harper's Weekly or um, other other regional uh, newspapers because they're feeling the effects of it. Right. Their families had gone through it, but it also made it wide news among local community. These weren't just shootings and and um, things like that. These were each one of these were very interesting episodes um, that were taking place to, you know, for Henry and the gang to take a stand on the um, social injustice that was happening throughout the community. Okay. All right. So I have I have questions about some of the things that, that y'all have said. All of this is such good information. So um, I'm going to go back to one of the very earliest things that Lawrence mentioned about conscription. So um, for the listeners that, you know, maybe don't understand exactly how this worked, um, these are free people, right? So how is it, how is that process of conscription happening? Is it um through just the threat of violence or is violence actually happening in some cases or, or what is that process for listeners who maybe don't know? Well, I think that conscription really kicks off the violence um, in a way. And Lawrence, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know, um, and I like to say that the story really does start with Alan Lowry and, and really begins even um, in the 1830s when North Carolina disenfranchised um, Native peoples or free people of color, as we were also called, called which was a political term. Um, but we lost our right to vote, to bear arms, and receive a public education. So when we talked about the Lowry's being um, civically engaged, being part of the community, attending the Methodist church, living down in Elrod among um, white neighbors. Um, in fact, I think Alan Lowry for a time was even a slave owner. Um, so, you know, to lose all of that social standing, um, especially as a native person where that, you know, we had already come out of an enslaved period, both through, um, uh, slavery for the for sugar in the Caribbean and also indenturement to lose those rights completely disenfranchised us. So Alan Lowry was already being very vocal about um, uh, this um, 
injustice that they were experiencing, uh, how their lives were being changed by this new law. And, you know, he was grooming his boys, essentially, like um, Lawrence said, William was kind of this pseudo sort of leader among the family. Alan Lowry at the time of uh, in the 1860s was already in his mid 70s. So he was really grooming his boys to to take the lead, if you will, kind of continue this family legacy of social justice and speaking out, right, against what's wrong. And so um, really, as the Civil War uh, happens, you have the figures, the people, if you will, that Alan was having some, um, trying to choose my words carefully and use nice words, but, you know, kind of a riff with, um, among the community that really were the same key figures that played out in conscription and ultimately also he and William's execution. Um, and so, you know, everybody, um, and I don't want to jump ahead, but, you know, when, when Alan and William are executed, everybody sees that as the pivotal moment or a defining moment of when Henry really, um, you know, uh, kind of starts the game, but really he had built up and conscription was a piece of that, you know, sending Lumby men to Fort Fisher to build the fort against their will. Um, and James Rantley Harris, uh, who I guess we'll talk a little bit more about, he played central in that history along with, um, you know, building up with, with Alan and William being executed. Because I think, I think Nancy hit on a good point. It's key to understand that what was going on during the Civil War was a boiling point. Yes, there there was this process that it, there were things that were taking place that went back to this establishment of uh, cotton as king in the South and plantation society, the plantation labor uh, society, and then, you know, the Nat Turner revolt and all these things had, I think, had a direct impact on the Indian people in Robson County. And by the time the Civil War came along, you kind of sort of saw this built up tension it, it was released with the murder of um, Allen and uh, William Lowry. And so this was, that was a game changing point for any people in Ross County. I think particularly like Henry, because the oral history goes is that, you know, he saw his father and brother murdered. So I can't imagine what that would be like and how it would affect someone's mental health. And so for him, I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And from that point on, I think it was all about blood and revenge and just getting even for the murder of his, um, his father and his brother. Okay, so um, basically, what y'all are saying then is that there were these these longstanding tensions in some cases that existed in the community, um, and then the death, murder of Alan and and William really is this the spark, right? Mm -hmm. uh, nothing, nothing's monocausal. We all know that, but that that was the kind of catalyst moment that kind of set off a, another chain of events, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, another question I had, because Lawrence, you had mentioned at the very beginning that the area was, you know, that a lot of people were impoverished and poor in the area. And I know one of the key aspects of the story of the Lowry gang is that they were going to wealthy plantations and, and robbing them. So where are these wealthy plantations and and who who's who's are they so there were so you got to understand the political dynamics in robson county during the civil war and what i mean by that is the, it was wealthy whites who who controlled the political system they controlled the judicial system and they controlled the food 
And like historian McKee Evans said, whoever controlled the food controlled everything else in Robinson County. And so these plantations were, there were some near Wilmington, excuse me, near Lumberton, because supposedly Hemerbury Lowry never went into Lumberton until right before his disappearance. So there were plantations, there was a plantation in Maxton, near Maxton, they raided. Um, and so there were a few others that were spread throughout because there were uh, whites that were living among the present day Lumbee community. So do we have any idea of a, of a, of a number? Could y'all give me a number? I mean, are they going outside of Robinson County to do some of this also, or? I think it's probably within, probably between, if you look at the present day map of Robinson County, I would probably say between Maxton and, and Lumberton, that area okay. and the town of Pembroke. So there may have been more outside of that. I, I don't know, but I think that was the general location of where those plantations were at. Okay, so these probably were not large plantations either, you know, like we might think, but probably if they had any type of food or items that could be used by the community, probably would have been a target of of the gang, I can imagine. So then maybe then what you're saying is everything's relative, right? So by calling these wealthy plantations, it's kind of wealthy within the terms of where people were at economically in Robson County at the time. Is that yeah, more, more affluent, I guess, than, than most other folks in, in the county. Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. Because I imagine by that point in the Civil War, any any items they had were had probably been taken by uh, Union soldiers and any Confederate soldiers that may have been in the area also. But they probably mm-hmm. just had a little bit more than everybody else. Okay. So what do y'all know? What What's the year range in which these activities are happening? Really, it's a gang active. Really, it gets started with um, in um, I think late eighteen sixty four. Correct me if I'm wrong, Nancy. Yeah. Um, there was a J.P. Barnes, James P. Barnes, who was a wealthy slave holder. He was killed by the Lowry gang. I think that was in December, and then maybe a couple weeks after that, um, James Brantley Harris who was a white bootlegger who lived in the county, but he was also a home guard um, officer who was responsible for um, managing a lot of the logistical things and rounding up resources for uh, the Confederate Army. Um, He um, killed three Lowry boys, and it turns out those three Lowrys were first cousins to Hammerberry Lowry. And so, and he wasn't charged at the time, for the murders. And so, of course, you can imagine Hemerbury Lowry and his gang, who've already killed J.P. Barnes, are probably seeking some form of justice because the Indian community is probably saying, what's going on here? Three of our tribal members have been killed by this home guard official. Who's going to do something? And so um, Hemerbury Lowry um, actually uh, killed Harris, uh, I think about a mile from uh, from the town of Pembroke today. So um, he built a blind and as Harris was riding by in his horse and buggy, he jumped out from behind the blind and shot him dead in his horse and buggy. And so that really was when um, I think really things really got started and kicked off um, with the war. And that was, I think, January of 1865. Yes. And that and that go ahead. I was going to say and then Harris was also the local conscription officer, too. And he was the postmaster general, too, wasn't he? Probably so. Yeah. He had his fingers in a lot of different places, but um, he had, cons- he, um, if I remember correctly, Nancy helped me out with this. I, I always get confused. I think two of, one of, 
so he had two of the Lowry boys, who I think were home on furlough from, from conscription in, in, in Wilmington. Mm -hmm. And I think he had, had he already killed one brother and then they were home and he was afraid. I think he was afraid for his life. And, um, he, the, these two Lowry boys were tied up, got on the train with him. And I think at some point during that train ride, he beat him to death. So a very uh, short amount of time. Yes. I mean, they were less than three miles down the road. They were dead uh, yes. from Pembroke to Moss Neck. Um, and that was about 20 to 25 minute train ride. Yeah. He said that he was attacked by them, which is why he killed them. Um, which we obviously is untrue, right? Because they were shackled. I mean, uh, on their ankles and their hands were behind their backs uh, as they were, he was transporting uh, they were, he was supposed to, James Brantley Harris was supposed to be transporting them back to Wilmington via the train. So from where he picked them up in Pembroke to the next stop in Moss Neck, these boys were dead. Why, why would, why would he do that? What explanation is there for why he, he feared for his life? He had already killed the one Lowry boy. And I imagine he probably knew, uh, he probably, probably figured that the Lowry's were, were out to get him. Because he knew him very Lowry was a member of the gang and there was William. So I imagine fear for his life. I don't know. And I think that they're really what we're seeing situated here is power, right? Among um, native peoples that had uh, had a certain amount of power. The, the Lowry family certainly had a, a, a certain amount of power among the community even though it had dwindled maybe over the recent decades. And then you see James Brantley Harris uh, coming into the community. And, you know, Pembroke was definitely defined more so as this new train stop, this new um, kind of white community uh, in Robinson County. It wasn't necessarily uh, distinguished as a native community the way it is today, even though there were lots of native people there. And so he, James Brantley Harris, uh, what, a piece of this that we haven't touched on yet is um, he had very strong affections towards Native women. And so, you know, part of the power that he was wielding was uh, power over Indians, power over Native women. Um, and so it was control, you know, let's, and I think that he saw the Lowry's as extinguishable that these were people that were easy, easy to get rid of. And that actually played out in the court system because he was acquitted of their murders of, of um, Wesley and little Allen's murders were the two guys that he killed. Um, and, you know, we've done this exhibition. The museum has curated um, an exhibition about Fort Fisher um, conscription, Lumbees and conscription at Fort Fisher. And in the research, it really looks like, you know, as history goes, right, there's always one uh, a building and power figure um, through one episode to the next that gains more power. James Brantley Harris is one of these kind of figures in this history that really brings a lot of attention to the North Carolina General Assembly and says, hey, there's lots of Lumbee men that are here and or Native men that are here in Robinson County that are eligible to build Fort Fisher, right? And what prompted us during this research, and I mean, this is ongoing, but as it stands right now, it really looks like he was trying to remove Native men from the landscape. You know, so he is um, 
you know, getting rid rid of, of the most powerful family that's a thorn in his side in the community and is really uh, offering any kind of protection and any sort of um, kind of, you know, uh, being willing to put themselves on the line to fight fight for these women, fight for their community um, in a way that's just very unbridled, right? I mean, what we're skirting around here is this was really played out with a lot of violence. I mean, really hard uh, to digest violence that we're talking about. And so um, by the time, you know, perhaps William was engaged in that, we don't have as much information about William and Alan and and sort of their methodologies of how they were kind of trying to fight for social justice beyond with their voice. They definitely weren't uh, just heard Cedric Wood, were, I'm sorry, Cedric Woods uses term vote with their feet. They didn't leave, right? A lot of times you see um, white uh, folks come into a community and push people out, push out native people, push them further out to the fringes. And the Lowry's were not accepting this. And so this really comes down to a situation of power between between James Brantley Harris and um, the Lowry's, which, as Lawrence just said, you know, Henry took care of that. Right. But he caught uh, James Brantley Harris caused a lot of um, awareness around Lumpy people who was available, who was there. Um, and I really think that it was situated around power in his appetite for Native women. Is he a sexual predator? Is that what you're saying? I would definitely say so. Um, Adolph Dial, uh, and Lawrence can cite the source or the quote, said that James Rantley Harris probably had over 100 Indian children in the community. And I don't know how to put a number on how many women that would be. But it was known, you know, he would, uh, and he was married. By and then, uh, uh, Henry Mary Lowry killed him. His wife seemed very relieved that he was taken out of this world and had instructed his um, enslaved peoples that they just dump his body in a um, abandoned well close to the property, and that was it. No, no ceremony, no funeral, or anything around that. But yeah, he would uh, court Indian women, right? I mean, consensual. He was known to use force. Um, he was known to use coercion and manipulation and fear, right? So there's physical force, um, manipulation and coercion. And then there's also just kind of the, you know, whichever method would play out to his favor to get what he wanted. So, yeah. And I think part of that, again, like Nancy was hinting at, was he was known as the meanest man in Robson County. So yes. even he was not even liked by local whites in the county. So I think he probably would, we probably would have considered him to be a bully today, you know, if we're looking back on him and, and we're judging based based on that. So I think in it, with his death, there were probably a lot of folks that said, eh, probably said, you know, he kind of got what he asked for, you know, because, you know, you play with fire long enough, eventually you're going to get burned. And I think that's what happened with the Lowry's. He just, he, he, went, he went too far and at the wrong time. Okay. Um, so one thing that, kind of keeps coming up, which is something that y'all know I'm very interested in, is this question of there's a lot of gender and like masculinity and masculine ideals going on here. And um, it, you just, Nancy, you just kind of talked about some of the ways that women were a part of this story. But I noticed like when we talk about the Lowry's, we're talking about all the men. Uh, and we haven't said anything about 
you know, any sort of Lowry matriarch or um, anything like that. And kind of thinking about, you know, the matrilineal nature of Southern natives, most of them, with the exception of the Uchi, of course. Um, it makes me kind of wonder where, where, where are the ladies? What, what's going on? How does, how does what they're doing fit in with these, these masculine ideals that are on display with, with the Lowry's? Or does it? I, I, I don't think that Lowry and the gang would have been able to do what they did without the support of the women in the community. Because while the Lowry gang and, and other Indian men were hiding out in the swamps, it was the women and family members who were bringing them food they could eat, bringing them guns, bringing them ammo. They were their eyes and ears. So um, so this, this stool had multiple legs to it. And I think the Lowry gang was part of it. Women were another part of it. And then you had supporters and family members. So. Yeah, I don't think you've been able, we would have been able to have one without the other. But I do think like, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Most of the men get all the publicity because I guess they were the ones to be demonized. They were the ones doing all the killing. But when you think about Rhoda, you know, here Barry Lowry was locked up in, uh, I think it was Whiteville, um, which is what, an hour's drive from here today uh, down the interstate. She walked all the way to Whiteville and broke Kimberly Barry Lowry out of prison. She was known as the, uh, Sex prettiest woman in in Scuffle Town, and so I think she understood the power of that, and she used that to her advantage to help Henry Barry Lowry break out. So yes, while Henry and the gang do get all the the publicity, I think you can't not mention the great work that Rhoda and the other uh, women were doing behind the scenes. We should say Rhoda's Henry Barry Lowry's wife. Yes, his wife. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is it a question then, like? so many things are uh, with history, particularly the history of Native people, that a lot of this in terms of our sources and our stories or what's coming to us from these newspaper articles and all of that that y'all have already mentioned, so that's coming through a very white lens, a very patriarchal lens, and that's why there's so much focus on men and, and not, not so much. No, 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 that, no, that's not what I'm saying. No, I just mean like the actual um, written record, like the newspaper articles and things like that that y'all have already mentioned. And I think that that's an interesting point that you bring up because, you know, um, in that time frame, you have these parallel stories, right? And so you have what's being in print and folks who can read what's in print is very important because not during that time, not a lot of our people could read. Um, and or if, if there were folks that could read, they would share stories with one another. But really, the fantastic word of mouth um, that was traveling among the community and sharing the stories. But like Lawrence said, you know, this was a network of people. And I want to circle back quickly to the women that were um, aiding Lowry. There, it was divided. I, and we should make it sound like there's. Um, Everybody was in support of what was going on with the Lowry gang because they were not. Um, a lot of people, even his own brother, who was my four times great grandfather, Patrick Lowry, Henry's brother, totally disagreed with what Henry was doing. Um, he was a reverend, in fact, Patrick, and he was denouncing it, trying to disassociate himself a little bit from Henry because, you know, they're murdering people, they're robbing people, they are um, terrorizing people. Um, there is a positive outcome to all of that violence, but not everyone, especially within a very vastly Christian community, were subscribing to that. But I think that, you know, the Lowry work lasts for almost a decade. And so you can see over time 
um, even a, a great grandmother of mine on the other side who would leave those baskets of food on the edge of the woods or, you know, switch out laundry hanging on the line for them to come get in the middle of the night. Um, those types of things, people were caught and they were punished for doing those things. And these women continue to do them, right? They they created this, this interlinking network um, that uh, enabled Henry and the gang to accomplish what they did. But, you know, uh, that really kind of, those two stories kind of skirted one another, right? So you have the written record that's existing, uh, probably getting far more sensation as these things do outside of the community. And then you have people that are in the middle of it all, right? And a little bit divided about what's going on. It's really not until Strike at the Wind brings those two things together. Um, and it was a playwright, a, a white playwright who, who writes Strike at the Wind, who takes the written record and the oral history and marries it in a way that 100 years forward, we're able to digest this story in a much different kind of way, but um, for a long time, it was very contentious among the community. Um, and, you know, in fact, Rhoda, as strong as she was during the um, during the war itself, afterwards, she becomes very reclusive because she's afraid. She's ousted by the community. She's not embraced by everyone. Neither were her children. Um, they were considered outcast. Um, so it's interesting how, as a people, um, and how much notoriety Henry Barry Lowry and the gang have today, um, it was very different. Even, I would say, up in, I mean, like during my mom's day in the 1950s, nobody wanted to be associated with Henry Barry Lowry. That was just, you know, a little taboo. That was just something you couldn't get too close to. Do you well, Lawrence has his disagree face. I, I see, I see that face. Um, but I, I don't, I'm going to ask about, I want to ask about that in just a minute, but I was wondering if we could just back up for just a second and talk about how people felt at the time, because you have just kind of laid out for us the fact that there was some disagreement, not everybody in the community supporting this, not even everybody in his own family. Um, and so I was wondering if you could maybe just speak a little bit more about that, about, you know, are there any, you know, what are the divisions you know, what are maybe some of the reasons why people supported it, reasons why people didn't? Is it about, you know, families and, and kinship or? I think, I think, first of all, folks need to know that, that uh, there were Lumbees, I think the majority of Lumbees supported the Union Army, but there was a small number also that supported the Confederate Army, Army Confederate Army. So not everyone fully embraced either side. So there was that division. But then the Lowry gang in itself, you need to understand, was sort of like a small family unit because it consisted of Henry Lowry, brothers, cousins, uh, the, the, the formerly enslaved African-Americans. One or two of them married cousins of the Lowry gang. And then like many of the others, actually, the white member of the gang, actually, they all grew up in the same community with each other. And they had known each other from a small from the time they were they were small kids. And I think even Rhoda had grown up in that community, too. So you've got this really small family unit that's operating as a gang. Um, and, but I think people outside of that saw the larger ramifications of what they were doing. And many of them probably realized, well, I either support the Lowry gang 
or on the other side of the coin, I have the home guard and the home guard sending our men to Fort to Fort Fisher to die and work on the fort. So I really don't think they had an option to not choose sides, if that makes any sense, because things were so dire. People were hungry. Um, you got to realize, I think people understand, too, that after the war was over, you had con conservatives who were trying to reassert their political dominance in the community. And so they were they were. Uh, so I think Indian people, we had to, we had in some ways, we might not have had a choice but to support him. Really, I don't know. I could, I could be wrong with that. What about other? Because it's a diverse community, right? So, any sense on how other people felt? I mean, I'm sure those those wealthy plantation owners were not not fans and certainly the home guard were not fans, but there were some, there were some whites that did support the uh, Lowry gang. Mm -hmm. So, but I, you know, McKee Evans history is a great read of the Lowry gang and he gets into some detail about um, a couple of folks, white folks in the community who did support the Lowry gang. And a lot of those plantation owners were targets um, in the local area. So between kind of going down 710 into South Carolina, um, you know, definitely in and around Robinson County, Roland. Um, and there are all these, you know, fantastic stories that survive about meeting places of Henry and the gang and supporters. Uh, there's one in Roland where a little boy uh, had fallen asleep after his chores and woke up to find that Henry Barry Lowry and the gang were meeting in the barn and he's up in the loft and he hears them plotting to, you know, rob a neighboring farm with, uh, uh, some other folks beyond the gang that were in the area. And so, um, yeah, those people were terrified. But then you have um, in the Fort Fisher exhibit, which I invite everyone to go out and see, <laughs> um, we have two guns uh, there, two rifles. Uh, one is a Spencer um, that represents sort of the spectrum of those that did support him. And, you know, uh, one of the, the strategies that they would use is they would have a network of people that would, they would drop off guns and pick up guns. The guns that they drop off would get loaded, be um, uh, put out again in a hidden place that they only knew about, and then they would kind of take off. So they weren't constantly, you know, uh, saddled with, with um, bullets and things like that, ammunition. Um, but one of the guns, interestingly enough, was down in Bennettsville, and it was um, provided to Henry by an enslaved person, and it was one of his drop-off guns. Um, and then the other gun that we have, which is a Spencer rifle on display, um, Henry paid for uh, wounds that he had received. Uh, he paid a doctor in Fayetteville, a white doctor. Um, he paid him with this gun. And so here you see in that time frame, two different people that were on either end of the spectrum, right? An enslaved person and here a physician in Fayetteville um, who were both supporting Henry, but who he was also fluid among, right? I mean, that says a lot about the person himself, um, how he was able to, um, again, that charisma, right? to be able to find um, meaning among all different kinds of people. People believed in what he was standing for. Um, and, you know, they, they might have been in the shadows. They might not have been out in the forefront saying, yay, Henry, we support you. But they supported him in very risky ways, um, very strong but risky ways, yeah. 
Okay. So one thing that we keep coming back to is, is the violence. The fact that, that this was violent resistance and a violent response to things that had been happening, um, perhaps over decades and certainly things again, that were kind of crystallized around, um, conscription to Fort Fisher. So what happens to Henry? Barry Lowry, does he meet a violent end or what happens to him? Well, so, um, so in, in 1869, the uh, North Carolina General Assembly placed a bounty on Henry Barry Lowry's head. And so uh, by 1872, that bounty had grown quite considerably, I think to like $22,000, which I think is the equivalent of a quarter of a million dollars today. Largest bounty so, than any outlaw in the United States at the time. Yes. Yes. And so, uh, and so by 1872, in 1872, the Lowry gang went into Lumberton and they robbed uh, a merchant um, there and stole a safe. And uh, supposedly that safe contained, contained the bounty for Henry Lowry. And so, again, it was about a quarter of a million dollars. Um, this was sometime, I think, in February of 1872. And soon afterwards, Folks start hearing that Henry Barry Lowry was cleaning his gun and accidentally blew his head off. And so, uh, folks, many folks, I think, started accepting that fact and, and, uh, their attention turned away from Henry Barry Lowry and went to other members of the gang. The problem is a lot of folks started, some folks, I think, started digging into the story to find out more about how he accidentally blew his head off. And the more they learned, I think, the more they began to question what happened. Because supposedly, you know, you got to think about Henry Barry Lowry. He was described as a man who carried many guns and knives and all these things around with him in the swamp and on a daily basis. You just can't imagine someone like that accidentally blowing his head off, cleaning his gun. And so they learned. So folks discovered that what happened was um, right after stealing the the bounty, they were at one of Henry Barry Lowry's brother's homes over in the Union Chapel community. And um, they decided to stage his death so that he could supposedly leave Robinson County. And what they did was um, folks knew Henry was outside. They heard this, this gunshot go off. And when they went outside, there was this body that had his face was blown off because of the shotgun blast. Well, supposedly the person that saw the body was a small child. And so you could easily convince a small child that this was Henry Barry Lowry. And so, so based on that evidence, people assumed that Henry Barry Lowry was dead. So some folks are thinking that he staged his uh, death. He uh, escaped Robinson County and um, would come back periodically to visit. So um, some people think he left with the Union Army. They think he dressed up as a soldier and marched right out of Robinson County. Some think he may have gone over into uh, Tennessee where Lowry is a common name. Um, some think he had a, I think it was a sister, Nancy, help me out, who wound up in Arizona, uh, was a gold miner. New Mexico. New Mexico. Uh, she was married to James Oxendine, and he had moved out to Albuquerque to establish uh, a mercantile. He was a merchant. So some think he, he could have ended up there with them. Um, but supposedly when Rhoda died in 1909, she lived to be an uh, older woman. She, when she died in 1909, Elderly folk remember that at her funeral, she's buried at Harpers Ferry Church, which is right at the river, that um, at her funeral, there was this elderly gentleman who drove up with a really nice car who stood at a distance and watched the funeral. And many of the elderly folks there remembered him being, that, that elderly gentleman being Henry Barry Lowry. 
So supposedly he came back to her funeral when she passed away. But after, and I forgot to mention this, and after Hammerbury disappeared, Rhoda would leave and be gone for weeks at a time. And nobody knew where she went to. So some folks theorize that she may have gone to visit Hammerbury Lowry for a couple weeks at a time. You know, if he's sitting on a quarter of a million dollars, I mean, he would have been able to provide her transportation and all of that to get where he's at. So that's that's where the story. That's that's the story. So Nancy, I don't know if you have any any other theories to add to it. That's it. So that's that's the that's the history mystery, right? That's why we're starting yes. with Henry Barry Lowry because we we don't know. So was there not a did they fake a funeral or? Well, here's the thing you got to keep in mind. That's a great point. Is had they not, uh, let's say he had he killed himself, the gang would have probably immediately buried the body because if someone had claimed his body, they would have been able to get the bounty that the the state had on his head. Yeah, good point. Supposedly the story at the time was they buried him, they what, diverted a creek or the river, buried him, and then uh, the river flowed back over where he's buried. So I forgot how how that went, but yeah, they immediately uh, hit his body. And now when you drive there, your car goes in the opposite direction, even when it's in neutral or like whatever those stories are, right? Where there's always like a weird gravity thing that's happening. Yes, yes, yes. So, but it's a great story. But, you know, the funny thing is, is I kind of, I kind of, it reminds me of the search for the Holy Grail. People spend their life searching for the Holy Grail, kind of like they do for Hammerberry Lowry, but at the end of the day, what happens if we found Hammerberry? What happens if he found the Holy Grail? Would people still be as interested in the story? You know, because people love to just sit around and theorize about what really happened to him or Lowry. And I think his disappearance kind of adds a whole nother layer to this story and why people are interested. Because people would love to know, but at the end of the day, it's probably a good thing we don't know because it keeps folks talking about the conversation or talking mm-hmm. about him and what happened with the war. So, absolutely. Because, I mean, he's he's kind of, I think, some... Well, Nancy, you alluded to this, and so I want to come back to it about how people remember him. Today, you're saying it's definitely more of a folk hero, um, but you're saying not that long ago, people were much more divided. Um, and then I want to also kind of throw in this question because I've had uh, a student told me one time that um, the spellings, the two different spellings of Lowry are because of that. People who want to be associated with him and people that don't want to be associated with him. And so I was wondering if if that was true. It could be. Well, to your first question, and then we'll jump back to the last name, is that I think Henry, um, you know, we probably will never find the, the physical remains of Henry or a grave of Henry. But the way that Henry existed during his time is the same way that he exists among our community today. He's nowhere and everywhere at the same time. I mean, you know, they called him a ghost. They called him a phantom. Um, You know, he would just kind of spring up and, and uh, do whatever. But I think that that's how Henry is today. Like there doesn't necessarily have to be a grave that we can go to, um, to pay respects to him or remember him or tell his story because that is his legacy, right? His story lives within all of us. And I think that that, um, you know, when you look at UNCP or you look at uh, any of our, you know, subsequent chapters since the Lowry War, 
uh, among Lumbee people, it's that grit that has allowed us to persevere. I mean, a lot of people have said, you know, the spirit of Henry Barry Lowry was with us the night we went to Hayes Pond, right? So there's a little bit of Henry in all of us, but he's also on the wind. He's in the community. He's on the land, you know. Um, uh, he is everywhere. He's nowhere and everywhere all at the same time. So, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I agree with Nancy about it. I think that's what's key to the legacy of Henry Barry Lowry is now he is so ingrained in the culture that, there's so many things that happen afterwards that I think we could directly or indirectly attribute to the Lowry War, like the establishment of UNC Pembroke came out of the events of the Lowry War. You think about in 1958 when we ran the KKK out of um, Robinson County, how many of those men that night were invoking the spirit of Henry Lowry during that event? You know, and every time we get together for Lumbee Homecoming at July 4th, how many of us are thinking about Henry Lowry? Every time we go down to the river, or we go by his house, or we think about the pride that is in us as a people. All that goes back to, I think, that to the Lowry War. And I think that's really how it got started because we as a people, Nancy was talking about the Spencer Rifle earlier. Historian McKee Evans said that the Spencer Rifle did more to change minds and perceptions about the Lumbee people than anything else that could have happened. So I think those Spencer Rifles were the great equalizer in the sense that our people finally stepped out of the shadows and said, enough is enough. You're going to recognize us as the people who we are. And the person that was holding that Spencer rifle yelling that uh, was Henry Barry Lowry. And so I think it all goes back to him and everything that his gang did to support our people. So um, you can see it everywhere. Like Nancy said, he's, he's everywhere and everything that we do as a people. We may not mention him by name. He and, he and Rhoda and every other gang member, we may not mention him by name, but it's there. Yeah, I think that the Lowry War should trans, like the name, the terminology, you know, in recent years, we've really shifted the power from saying the KKK rally to the Hayes Pond rally or the Hayes Pond event. I really think that we should start referring to the Lowry War, even though that term served a purpose and still does, to a Lowry revolution, right? Mm -hmm. Because what it did was it inspired people, still inspires today, Um it was an uprising of a community against injustice and fighting for change. And um, it unified uh, people under a, banded, uh, a banner of unity um, and equality and all of these sort of, of themes um, that Henry was fighting for. And that was probably one of the first and major times, um, with the exception of the church, that Lumbee people were really brought together out of sheer desperation where we needed someone to step forward and really be that warrior to fight on behalf of a people. So it was a revolution. When you look at the definition definition of what a revolution is, that is what the Lowry War was. Are there any conversations today about the, the violence or by calling it the Lowry War, does that kind of does that cover it? Well, I think I think um, when I think about the violence, I think the, the violence was just the language of the time. It's what the Confederates were speaking and, and our people finally were using that same language. And so I think when we're speaking the same language, we're understanding each other. And I think the Home Guard finally understood what Indian people were saying, like enough is enough. And that's what gets back to that Spencer rifle and shooting hot lead at people. They're going to think twice about what they're saying and doing to your community. 
and people, you know, then that kind of endured, right? Then you start seeing people moving out of other, like white people moving out of the community. Um, you know, this kind of reputation of all oh, those Indians will touch you or, or, you know, they're threatening some kind of violence against you. Don't go down there. Don't go into there. And then we were kind of like, okay, well, this is working. You know, even by reputation, right? Things feel a little safer and they, they are taking pressure off and, uh, we can take a, uh, we can exhale and take a breath of relief, right? We're not being targeted and subjugated. Um, and so, yeah. Well, I wondered too, if it wasn't, um, in terms of, you know, what it, what it kind of communicated and, and Nancy, going back to your comment about a revolution, um, having the right to bear arms legally taken away from you, I think you're saying quite a lot by then turning around and, and using arms in this way to communicate um, what your political rights are. And, you know, I know we're running out of time and that this is, could be a whole other topic, but Native people and guns, especially in the Carolinas, has always was always a, a, a hot button topic for um, even uh, legislators and and seats of power, right? Um, and so you really can look at that history of should Indians have guns? Should they not? Should we trade guns with them? Should we not? They're being used against the, against us. Let's take them away. But oh, they're working on our plantations and our farms. So yeah, we want them to have guns for hunting or those types of things. You know, guns have always been contentious uh, topic among um, colonial settlement and native populations, not only in the Carolinas, even in the Southeast. So that's just a continuation of that, right? Is to say, yes, that's, that is um, a uh, divisive power. That's one, that's one of the major things we need to take away, not only for protection, but also for food. You know, that'll be a way to weaken the population. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think if you're, if we think about conscription too, if we kind of go back to the beginning and we think about conscription and how it was working um, with the home guard, who certainly were armed, right? Um, it, you know, depriving people of a way to kind of defend themselves and protect themselves is a way to try to continue to assert your power, right? So, um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we are almost out of time, but I wanted to ask y'all, is there anything that we need to know about Henry Barry Lowry before we go that we haven't talked about? I think the only thing that, um, I'm sorry, Lawrence, but just his age, right? So when this starts, he's a 17-year-old young man, and the climax of the end of the war, he's about 27, 28. He's very young, and youth definitely probably played into his actions, right? And um, also, just like Lawrence said, the desperation of the time. Um, his father and brother had made the ultimate sacrifice by giving their life, and it seems that through his behaviors that Henry had already resigned, that he was going to lose his life, probably. Um, and so just that, you know, a lot of us... Um, visualize him as being a more mature man, but he was, you know, between 17, depending on what year we're talking about, between 17 and about 27 years old. He was really young. And I just wanted to add, I think Hilbert Lauer is a very complex, com complicated individual. Um, and, you know, we just can't judge him by 2021, by 2020, through a 2021 lens. I mean, he, you have to understand the time he was living in. And so I think, I think his, who Henry was as a person 
I think needs to be investigated, not investigated, but I think folks need to think more clearly about that and who he was and how the times impacted him as a man, you know, and, and what he did. So, um, but again, I think he was just complicated, but, but, but Henry was, Henry was the man though. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Very good. Well, uh, Lawrence and Nancy, I want to thank y'all so, so very much for your time and, um, telling all of us about Henry Barry Lowry. Thank you. Thank you.